For BYU-Idaho Radio, I'm Chandler Gowadney, and I'm joined in the studio today by today's devotional speaker, Brother Jason Williams, who is Dean of the College of Language and Letters here at BYU-Idaho. Thanks for joining me. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's get started. I want to see, how did you come up with this topic? What was the process like of writing this talk? You know, I had had lots of thoughts as I prepared to write this talk, and uh, I was planning on a completely different subject. I was actually thinking a lot about how we know when we're feeling the Spirit, and that's kind of, for weeks, that's what I thought I ought to give a talk on. And then, actually, I was bearing my testimony in church at the beginning of this month, and I just got to thinking about how the 200-year anniversary of the revelation of the Book of Mormon is coming up, and I, or the restoration of the Book of Mormon, you know. And I just thought, this seems like an appropriate topic for a devotional talk. So that's what got me thinking along these, these lines. That's perfect. And, and you, like you said, it was 200 years um, yes. this past Thursday. That's right. And so as I read the, through your talk and as I, I studied it a little bit, littered throughout um, are references to Latin roots of words, Greek mm. roots of words, their true meaning— um, what they translate to. How has your background as the dean of language of uh, of the College of Language and Letters helped you to see the Book of Mormon in a different way? How has it changed your perspective? That's a great question. So I'm an English teacher. I work in the in the Department of English, and I love words, and I like uh, knowing the histories of words and the roots of things and the the when I'm reading, I, I enjoy thinking about various translation processes. And I think reading the scriptures in general for me has been deeply influenced by my training as um, an, an English major and then now an English professor. So I believe that all of us, as we read the scriptures, can benefit by thinking about them as sort of the same things we think about when we read any text, which is... Who are the characters? What are they concerned with? What is the conflict? Um, what, what am I supposed to get out of this particular passage? How does it relate to the passages that surround us or that surround it? And I just think the scriptures become so much more meaningful and open to us as we think of them, not just in bite-sized pieces, which is how we often uh, approach the scriptures, you know, a single verse that we read in isolation. But as we read in context, and that context includes, I believe, the um, you know the the words and the translation process that that result in those words as we read the scriptures in context, I think they become more meaningful to all of us. Absolutely, and I think, as you said, you love to look at the truth, the meaning of words. You like to dive deep into the mm-hmm. scriptures, and that's an important part of of study. Um, as students and myself included, right? We don't necessarily. I don't know necessarily the resources yeah. um, that come with doing such a deep dive into the language of the Book of Mormon and the language of Scripture and the history. Do you have any resources that others, that students might use? Well, I have two suggestions, and one is simply to read them a lot. I mean, the Scriptures are their own context. So when we read things in the New Testament, for example, in the last few weeks we've been reading out of Second uh, Corinthians in Paul, he does a lot of quoting from the Old Testament. And it's not really indicated. There aren't quotation marks, but he's thinking about Psalms, for example, when he, um, you know, uh, quotes a particular passage in his letters. So simply having read Psalms is a great preparation for reading Second Corinthians. So that's my first suggestion. When we uh, uh, become deeply engaged in scriptures 
regularly and consistently, and we can sort of become more familiar with the whole body, then things jump out at us. Because like I say, the scriptures are their own context. My second piece of advice, though, is not to worry so much about background knowledge. I know this goes counter to what I just said, but there's been an important addition. I don't know if you've noticed, but in devotional, at least I think it's an addition. I just hadn't noticed it before this semester. But the presenter, after he says that we ought to show the speaker that we're ready to be taught, also encourages us to write down the thoughts and feelings and promptings that we have as we listen. And I believe that those things are sometimes not even all that related to the topic being discussed. As we read scriptures and we are open to the Holy Spirit and the prompting that that Spirit gives us, those are personal messages to us from Heavenly Father that may have nothing to do with Latin roots or you know, uh, Jewish history or any of that kind of stuff. We don't need extra content or we don't need background knowledge to hear from our Heavenly Father in that way. So th- those are my two pieces of advice to anybody reading the Scriptures. I love that because we learn a lot of the time that through prayer and through our wanting to know more about the Scriptures and what Heavenly Father has in store for us, right? Every time we read something in the Scriptures, it can mean something completely mm-hmm. different to us depending on where we are in life. Yes. And the same goes for when we listen to devotionals, when we listen to general conference, which is coming up. Um, these things can can change depending on where we are Absolutely. in life and yeah. in answers to our prayers. Later on in your talk, a little bit, I guess, the middle of your talk, um, you talk about how Joseph Smith went into the Grove of Trees to pray, mm-hmm. and he received his answer that he shouldn't join any of the churches, um, that he would be known for good and evil, that he would know all of these things. Uh, same thing with the angel Moroni that you talked about. And I love a passage in your talk um, where you mentioned that this may not be what he expected. It might have been a little more than he thought he was going to get when he prayed. Because the first time, right, he prayed, uh, and then Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ came down. The first thing that Heavenly Father said was, thy sins are forgiven thee. Yeah. The second time, you, ta- you talked about how the angel Moroni was like, you're going to be doing this and this and this, and you need mm-hmm. to do this and this and this. And I imagine for even a 17-year-old Joseph Smith, that would be overwhelming, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think it's important to know that when we ask Heavenly Father for things, um, we may not exactly enjoy or expect the answer that we get, but he answers our prayers. Yeah. I think we naturally, when we pray, have our immediate concerns in front of us. Um, we're worried about maybe um, getting a job, or maybe we're worried about um, our classes, or we're worried about medical problems, or we're worried about the specific circumstances of our family or our health. You know, all of those things are right in front of us. But the Lord has a bigger picture in mind for us. It's the totality. He's got the whole picture in mind for us. And sometimes um, He can answer those things um, when we haven't even asked for them yet. And I think this is what happened with Joseph Smith. His principal concern, well, he had, I think, two principal concerns when, when, uh, when he prayed. One of them was to know which church to join, but the other was, how can I be saved? How can I know if I'm saved? What's the state of my soul? He had very similar concerns when he prayed in 1823 and received that revelation with, with the um, you know, appearance of Moroni. Well, Joseph had one thing in mind. And the Lord had a different thing in mind. He certainly answered Joseph's concerns, but he answered so much more than that. Yeah. And I, yeah, and he, 
And it's great to know that Heavenly Father sees the beginning from the end. Mm-hmm. And he knows everything that is involved in that. And he sees our potential. And so that maybe we may feel overwhelmed by an answer, right. um, what we receive. But we're going to be okay because yeah. Heavenly Father is there for us. I like how you tied that in a little bit later to your being called as a bishop. Are mm-hmm. you still a bishop? Or yes. Are you? Okay. Yeah. So this is still your calling in your ward. Um, and I like how you talked about how you were overwhelmed by the call, as I'm sure young Joseph was, and how you were wondering, how am I going to get to these 83 youth in this program? How am I going to talk to everyone who I need to talk to, remember everything I need to remember, um, all the things that come with being an ecclesiastical leader in a ward? With that, um, coincidentally, I was studying grace last night in my scriptures, and I came across the definition of grace uh, in the Bible dictionary, and it talked about how grace is through the atonement of Jesus Christ, and it gives us the strength, the added strength, to do things beyond our human capabilities to do them. How have you seen grace, um, the enabling power of Jesus Christ, play a role in your calling as bishop and throughout your life? That's a great question. So I'll start with the bishop part and then see if we can move to throughout my life. That's a bigger question. There are lots of ways in which grace plays a role in all of our callings. But one of the main ways is we are, there's a, there's a saying, the Lord qualifies whom he calls. I don't think that means that we automatically become smarter or, you know, more capable on our own. But what I does, what I do think it means is that Heavenly Father recognizes our strengths and our weaknesses and is able to sort of fill in where we lack. And in all of our callings, where we lack is actually pretty significant. Um, we are just volunteers, and we're not trained to do these things. What we do bring is a willingness, you know, to serve Heavenly Father and a desire to serve Heavenly Father. But And, and of course, we try our best. But the, the, whatever our calling is, the task, that task is so important that it requires Heavenly Father's help. So I'll give you one example. I actually felt this before I was called, shortly before I was called to be bishop. Uh, our ward had gone on a ward trek and uh, involving you know all, nearly all of our youth, and it was a, a week-long trip. And I, I was going as a, as a father. I didn't really have an official role there, but I kind of went to accompany the youth and walk along with them. And I remember one evening watching all these youth that I actually didn't know very well um, because I had been serving in a campus bishopric and before that on the high council, so I didn't really know these youth very well. And I remember looking around and thinking, just feeling overwhelmed with a sense of love for them. I believe that loving other people's teenagers is a gift from God. I just don't see how else it could happen. But I certainly felt it, and I was surprised by it. And I thought, why do I love these kids so much? It was obvious what I was feeling, and it was obvious that it was a gift from the Lord. And it was a few weeks after that that I was called to be bishop, and that question was answered. So I think one of the main ways that I have felt grace in my calling, and I think this can apply to all of us and all of our callings, is a feeling of love uh, for those we serve. I think that's a gift from Heavenly Father and a necessary one. I love that. It's When you're a teenager, right, you, you have teenagers, I'm sure. And, I do. And you you love them. They, they are sometimes difficult. Myself being a teenager recently, right, um, I may have been hard to deal with. And so having that overwhelming love for a group of teenagers that you don't even necessarily know very well is a blessing. It, it is. sure is, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. My next question, or my my next 
thing that I would like to point out, I guess, is you talk about how the scriptures talk about how in, in the case of Alma, in the case of um, Zeezrom, they said their, their hearts, their souls were harrowed up mm-hmm. uh, in sin. And yeah. you made this important distinction. You said both Alma and Zeezrom identify the sin, not repentance, as the source of that painful harrowing. I think, as you pointed out, a lot of times people will come in and they'll say this, the repentance process is what hurts, right? The repentance process is what's what's bringing me shame or is making it difficult for me to change. Um, and you made that distinction. Can you tell me a little bit more about that distinction? Yes, I think you're right. I think it's one of the um, can keep us sometimes from repenting, being worried about thinking of repentance as a consequence, you know, for for sin. And we think, uh, oh no, I've done something that I shouldn't have done. Now I have to repent as if that's an obligation or a punishment, you know, like uh, going to time out or something like, you know, something like that. Really, repentance is rescue. All of us, just by the nature of the fact that we are human beings, experience all sorts of grief and loneliness and sadness and shame for, you know, what we may have done or not done. These are human feelings. And um, repentance means that we do not have to stay mired in those feelings. So I think that's a key distinction. Repentance is the rescue. It's not the punishment. And I have seen this over and over again as bishop, actually, when people come in um, it's a little, it takes quite a bit of courage sometimes to talk to your bishop, but the feeling of relief that comes is immediate. Um, the feeling of confidence that comes with thinking, you know what, there is a, there is a way forward from this. The, the, just the um, optimism that we can be better people is, uh, through the atonement of Jesus Christ is actually a really freeing thing. So I think of repentance not as uh, a limitation, or as a punishment, but as an expansive rescue that allows us to become the people that, that we want to become and that Heavenly Father wants us to become. And could you expand on that maybe a little bit? Because the number of people I've talked to that say, I don't want to go to the bishop because of X, Y, and Z. I'm afraid of being judged. I made these mistakes and I don't want him to see me in this light. Can you talk about Maybe the love that comes, we talked about that beforehand, mm-hmm. the love that comes with the calling. Yeah. Uh, can you expand on just what the process is, maybe how a bishop, how you feel when somebody comes in and repents um, yeah. of their sins? Well, I can only tell you how I feel. And uh, I will also say, I'm speaking as if I'm an expert on being a bishop. Well, I've been a bishop for a year, and I have no idea how long I will have to be a bishop before I feel like I'm an expert at it. But I suspect it'll be more years than I'm actually a bishop. So I'm only speaking from my experience. Right. When I speak with people about repentance, um, my first impression is always admiration. When somebody comes in to talks to, and, and talks to me, it's clearly difficult, and I feel my very first impression is, what a brave person. I admire this person so much for coming to see me. And uh, close second is, I love this person. God loves this person, and I'm feeling some of God's love for this person. So admiration and love is what I believe any bishop feels when somebody comes in to uh, talk to them. Um, and if there's a third feeling, it's confidence. That first step is pretty hard sometimes for people. That first step is pretty hard. But once you're beyond that step, then the path forward is actually fairly clear. 
We reach out to the Savior. We rely on his atonement to uh, cleanse us. And then we make small changes that allow us to, over time, change to become better people. Circling back, your talk is all about how the Book of Mormon is a book about repentance. Yes. And we talked about how Joseph Smith got an answer to his prayer probably more than he expected, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But he answered, Heavenly Father answered those questions, and through his translation of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith was able to extend those answers to every single person who would go on to read that book. Yes. What a blessing that is to everyone who has read it, will read it, um, who lives with its teachings in their life. How have you—I'm going to turn this on you because this is the question you asked in the discussion board— I want to know your answer to this. You asked, how has the Book of Mormon increased your understanding of repentance? So I want to know, how has it increased your understanding of repentance? Well, turnabout is fair play, and I should have expected that. <laughs> I think the Book of Mormon uh, affected my understanding of the, of the uh, of repentance is very similar to many of the respondents that responded on that discussion board. I would say probably half, maybe even more than half of the people who responded on that discussion board referenced specific stories about repentance, individuals who experienced repentance. And there are lots and lots of them in the Book of Mormon. And almost all of them said similar things. Well, if this person can do it, I can do it too. I recognized how uh, ashamed Alma the Younger felt, and this is in Alma 36 is one of the places where he describes kind of, that's actually, I believe, where he uses that. I don't remember if that's where he uses the term harrowing, but at any rate, he describes just sort of the, the shame he feels for recognizing that he's done something to hurt other people and um, the immediate relief he feels after he reaches out to the Savior. It's that individual experience that is important to me when I connect uh, other human beings on the other end of those stories. And I think, gosh, I've felt that way before. I guess there's hope for me too. It's not like the Bible doesn't have those sorts of stories. It does. We have been reading lately in Come Follow Me about Paul, who is actually pretty upfront about some of his struggles and some of his feelings about repentance. Um, But I do believe the Book of Mormon has more of those personal stories and more of the narrative is based on those sorts of personal story. So that's way that's one way it's affected me. And maybe because I simply enjoy um, reading all sorts of things. I like reading fiction and nonfiction, but what appeals to me when I read is stories about other people, and the Book of Mormon contains that. You talk about how some of these stories that we read about in the Book of Mormon with angels coming and with people getting struck into a coma for three days and, and things like that, they can be pretty instantaneous, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, you have three days and you're like, I'm good to go. I'm yeah. repented. I'm clean. I'm never going back. You talk about how that seems instantaneous, yet in our lives, we're s- slow to repent. It's a process. Um, can you expand a little bit more on that? Yes, I can. So when I think of repentance, I kind of think of it in two parts. And this is just me thinking in my own mind about it. There's the type of repentance when we confess and feel relief for, you know, uh, having confessed and we feel confidence in the Savior's atonement, that I do believe is instantaneous for many, many people. I believe that the Lord doesn't make us wait in order to feel that. We can feel it right away. However, the kind of repentance that involves change, where we slowly, 
gradually become better people. That can take some time. And I think even in those Book of Mormon stories you mentioned, so um, Alma the Younger, you were talking about him, that that has an appearance from an angel and is struck unconscious for three days and has an experience where he sort of wakes up and seems to be, in the narrative at least, a brand new person. I think it's important to point out that Alma himself later describes his own repentance as and conversion as if it happened gradually. He says, I, I've studied and prayed for many days. That's an interesting thing to say. You'd think, well, the angel appears, I guess I'm good to go, as you said, but that's not how Alma approached it at all. He approached his conversion and his repentance as a gradual thing, just like all of us do. Thank you very much for your time and for your words. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been a pleasure to learn from you and with you about repentance and a little bit more about the Book of Mormon. Um, that was Brother Jason Williams, who's the Dean of the College of Language and Letters here at BYU-Idaho, and today's devotional speaker. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chandler.